Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 6, Episode 7 of Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. That's right. You're in the right place. (laughs) My name is Rick. I'm author of uh, almost 40 books somewhere in that neighborhood. And the most recently released one was the Jesus Center Daily, my daily devotional that uh, was a two-year labor of love and deep dive into the heart of Jesus. So if you've um, somehow not heard about the Jesus Center Daily, and how could that be? Because I talk about it every every episode. But if you haven't heard of it or haven't yet gotten a copy, you can always go to jesuscenterdaily.com, the little website that I built for, for this um for this little treasure, <laughs> you can go to jesuscenterdaily.com and you can get a free 10-day sampler of it just to check it out if you want. You can watch my intro video there. Or you can order it from there. Of course, you can also just go directly to Amazon or group.com and order your copy or copies. Um, and if you already have a copy, as I always say, just post a review on Amazon. It really does help. It gets It's like a lightning rod or something like that. Does a lightning rod attract things? Yeah, it does. It attracts lightning. That that that's what the default purpose of that lightning rod is. So, so your reviews are like a lightning rod on Amazon. They attract other people, make them curious about it, and maybe they'll check it out. So, thanks for doing that. Uh, this is the tenth episode in a series I started last year called Kingdom Come. It's really focused on something that Jesus talks about all the time, and it's it's such a churchy sort of religious-y sort of phrase, that it's one of those that is feels awkward on our tongue, but it's about the kingdom of God. Um, there's probably no topic or no uh, emphasis greater than the kingdom of God in Jesus' ministry. And, and it's that kind of phrase that we think we know what it means, sort of, kind of, in a fuzzy way, but not really. And because Jesus talks about this so much, it's quite important for us to understand what he's talking about. So the kingdom of God is really the culture of the Trinity. It's the culture Jesus comes from. It's the culture created by the Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's the culture that Adam and Eve lived in prior to the fall. And after the fall, uh, they were broken and messed up people living in a broken and messed up world. And the culture of the kingdom of God became more and more of a distant memory. Uh, And the culture of a broken world took over. And part in the the central to the mission of Jesus, and not only uh, to come and be incarnated and sacrifice himself for our sins to restore the possibility of relationship with, with God again, that that was, that was his purpose, his mission was to plant the kingdom of God in this broken world and in our broken hearts. And he did this by lots of lots of ways. He did it experientially. He did it by modeling. He did it by teaching. He did it by uh, imploding and exploding the, the culture that had grown up around the broken world. Um, 
He did it by upending people's expectations and giving them a taste of what that kingdom of God really feels like. He did it in so many ways. Um, and what we're going to keep exploring for a little while is, well, what, what does the kingdom of God look like for us living in our own broken world with our own broken hearts? What does it mean for us to live inside of the culture of the kingdom of God and uh, embrace it more deeply than we embrace the culture of the broken world? What does that look like? So in today's episode, we're going to explore hurricanes. I know that doesn't make any sense <laughs> at first blush in connecting this to the kingdom of God, but trust me, it will as we get into this. So we're coming out of a, a pretty active hurricane season right now. Uh, it was more active than people uh, expected. It was a, a high degree of hurricane generation um, in the Atlantic, especially. And and weather experts are now warning that we're entering into another very active hurricane season in 2021. They're expecting even more activity. And that's uh, in part because of climate change and the progression of climate change is disrupting our weather patterns and um, our weather, our, our, the weather we get is becoming much more volatile. Sometimes I have to, this is a secret. I'm going to let you in on here. Sometimes I fantasized about creating an innovative and massive suspended fan that runs counterclockwise on some kind of nuclear power. And, it, and if you could get up above the top of a forming hurricane and drop this massive fan, fan down into the eye of the hurricane, could you neutralize the clockwise force of those uh, of that revolving growing hurricane could you neutralize it and dissipate it so that you could sort of uh, take the fuel rod out of every hurricane that's forming if you had this big massive fan i fantasized about oh what what would it look like to create that would that actually work and then i realized oh yeah i forgot i know nothing about weather patterns in physics so probably that wouldn't work but the, the reason I thought about this is that every time a hurricane hits a landmass that has people on it, devastation and loss of life follows. It's just hurricanes are so destructive. And it feels like, isn't there a, a, a way um, that we could lessen the impact of these major storms? But um, if we did, it turns out that might not be the best thing <laughs> because hurricanes we know from science, literally keep our planet alive. Uh, the way they do that is they roil up the waters of our oceans so deeply that it stirs up the nutrients that are have kind of settled down into the depths of the ocean. It stirs up those nutrients and widely redistributes them. And that causes rapid growth of these carbon dioxide eating phytoplanktons. And because of that, it keeps the earth from boiling over. It keeps our atmosphere from boiling up because of a carbon overage. So these hurricanes literally are the key to keeping that phytoplankton roiled up from the depths of the ocean and 
eating away at that carbon so that our atmosphere is still livable. Isn't that amazing that if we actually were able to uh, stop the progression of every hurricane, it might kill the whole planet. So it's good to remember that everything in the created world is a parable, including hurricanes. Now, this is not just me talking. This is Romans 1. This is Paul, the, uh, the Apostle Paul talking, who says in Romans 1 that, that um, we're all accountable to God because he's embedded himself in all of creation. And if you just pay attention to what God has created and, and take from that creation uh, lessons and learnings about the personality of God, then you'll know God. Uh, so he says we can know God's power and character and personality if we just pay attention to the created world because he, he's embedded himself like a parable or like a metaphor in all the created world. So hurricanes, yes, they are devastating and scary because they're dangerous. Um, they also reflect back to us something that's true about God himself and about the kingdom of God. They're devastating, scary, they're dangerous, but their impact brings life through transformation. And in the kingdom of God, when we experience hurricanes in our life, they roil up life within us. Um, though they can wreak destruction in our life, they also unbury um, something that uh, has laid settled in our soul and they roil it up to the surface. And in doing so, we find new life. Let me tell you a story about um, when I was just out of college. It's really an era ago. <laughs> um, but I, I joined a discipleship training school that some close friends of mine in college had already uh, signed up for and been accepted to. And uh, these close friends were um, all Catholics, um, and I, I would call them evangelical Catholics, uh, meaning they were Catholics. They 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 went to mass every week. They had grown up Catholic and in Catholic families, and yet, unlike a lot of their peers, uh, they uh, believed in in uh, regular Bible study and regular devotional practices and disciplines. They believed in telling other people about Jesus and about his desire for relationship with them and inviting other people into relationship with him. Um, all of the things that, that sort of evangelical Christianity is known for, uh, these Catholic friends also practiced. Um, they were in every way similar to, to me, who was not an, who was not a Catholic, um, uh, except for their rich, deep history in the Catholic Church and their continuing commitment to the Catholic Church. So um, these friends had heard about a discipleship training school that was a pioneering effort in the, in the uh, Catholic Church over in Rome. And uh, the very first school sort of patterned after a youth with a mission discipleship training school was starting in Rome. And they had enrolled to be among the first people ever to go through this program. Well, I was just out of college, hadn't yet, you know, centered around uh, what I was going to do next. And 
this sounded like a perfect opportunity to do something adventurous with my friends. So I went and I got, I signed up and I was the only Protestant in a, uh, in a training program full of Catholics. There's 30, 35 people in the program, but I was the only Protestant there. So, so I lived in Rome for three months while I participated in this discipleship training program. And what I discovered almost from the moment I got on the airplane to go there is that this experience was going to be disorienting in every way. So I've already mentioned, I was the only Protestant in this Catholic uh, uh, training program. Um, and uh, the program was designed to help deepen our discipleship, deepen our faith, but also to equip us to share that faith with others. And then sharing it with others meant, of course, learning street dramas and going out into the Italian public squares, the piazzas, to attract a crowd with one of our street dramas. And when it was over, we would immediately turn and strike up conversations with those people who'd shown up. Obviously, something I had never even remotely done in my life. An incredibly dangerous feeling to me to go do this in the public square, but we did this constantly. We were always doing things that frightened me to my core um, and, and disoriented me. I lived in a convent with about these with these 30 other people, and they were from 18 different countries. Many of them spoke English as their second or third language, or they spoke English barely at all. And every meal that we had was cooked by the nuns. And a lot of it was food I'd never really eaten before, and um, especially breakfast. <laughs> I was used to eating cereal for breakfast, and we never had cereal for breakfast. We always had something that that I would never even consider to eat for breakfast. But um, so even just the food was disorienting. And as a Protestant, I attended daily mass during this school. So I never uh, took communion um, during daily mass because that's, that's one of the barriers. If you're a Protestant and not a practicing Catholic, then you don't take communion. Um, but every single day I went to mass um, as a Protestant and never having grown up in that tradition, uh, that was disorienting. And at the time I'd never really even traveled overseas and really had barely scraped the surface of America. <laughs> so the customs and norms of this huge Italian city just felt noisy and chaotic and perpetually upending and disorienting for me. Uh, in fact, I'd never really lived in a major city period, let alone a major city in a foreign country. And uh, just the, the feeling of being there, I can't describe to you adequately the visceral feeling of disorientation I had all the time. The culmination of this program was a, uh, believe it or not, a personal audience with Pope John Paul II for our whole group. Uh, and that involved going to the Vatican, being ushered through hallways, down to a ornate chapel that was just located off the bedchamber of the Pope in the Vatican. And uh, our personal audience with him involved standing about 10 feet away from him behind that, like a, literally a velvet rope, as he went through his morning personal devotion time with his back to us in this, in this ornate chapel. And when he was finished, we went to a little meeting room right next to that, not right next to that chapel. And he went around the circle of us personally greeting and having a short conversation with each one of us. There I am talking to the Pope. <laughs> so I could go on and on. Every aspect of this experience 
was disorienting. It put me off balance. I remember trying every day to have my, my personal devotion time and I could never get my brain to settle down because it was trying to acclimate to like a million different things it wasn't used to in this experience. And so I could never, I never felt settled ever the entire time I was there for those three months. And then we went on an outreach to the island of Malta in the Mediterranean. And that was a doubly disorienting experience. So, so the whole thing uh, just left me upended and off balance for all three, three and a half months. And that meant that disorientation became my norm. It, and that meant that even now, when I look back on it, if disorientation is your norm, it's both exciting and exhausting. I mean, it, it can, it can just exhaust you because your senses are on heightened alert all the time, because there's nothing that is expected. There's nothing that you can take for granted. There's nothing that's a default setting. Everything's new. And, um, and again, that was also exciting. I mean, I, I can't remember a time in my life where I felt such energy, um, just living my everyday life. Um, but it was also draining. And if you think about it, think about the disorientation of this last year, the hurricane of the pandemic and politics and racism. This hurricane, like my hurricane in Rome, um, has forced us to engage and innovate and improvise in ways we really never have before. I remember when I was in Rome, one of my, my best friends got chosen to be one of the two people um, approved to drive on behalf of the group. And my friend had to go through a driving, an Italian driving school in order to drive one of our vehicles. And he took me on one of his trips once. So he would go down and take mail that needed to be sent out. And because the Italian post was so, um, well, let's call it unpredictable, <laughs> that we would take our mail down to the Vatican, which uh, the Vatican was run by the Swiss post. So much more efficient, much more dependable. So he took me on one of these trips and I couldn't believe how he drove. He drove up on the sidewalk sometimes. He used his horn constantly. He was pushing his way in and out of traffic. I, I looked at him with my mouth open, but this is how he'd been trained to drive in Rome. And if you don't drive this way in Rome, you're going to get killed. <laughs> so, uh, so many, so many ways that I and others in that school had to innovate and improvise and learn new things in the your constant learning environment. Well, that's been the same as this last year, this disorientation of the pandemic, and then layered on top of that, our political situation, and layered on top of that, uh, all of the, the, the race-related issues that we're dealing with right now. Um, it's, it, it's, it's been, in a way, I guess you could say, exciting because we're having to learn something all the time, and it's unknown, and it's dangerous, but it's also exhausting. That's the word I hear most from other people and from my own family. We're exhausted from this journey. Um, and that's because uh, our life is being perpetually upended all the time. This hurricane that's rolled into our life is roiling up the waters of our soul. It's churning up stuff that has been undisturbed for so long. And it's bringing it up to the surface of our life. You've probably experienced this even being semi-quarantined in your home, <laughs> that there's lots of stuff that had laid in dormant in your lives that is being churned up by this hurricane. 
And now we're peering over the horizon and we see more clouds in 2021. You know, everyone was looking forward to the turn of the year and yet here we are. I saw one meme somewhere that said January and February were just added months onto 2020. <laughs> they were just extra, extra months in the 2020 calendar. Um, but we're, we're now entering slowly into this disorientation of a transition out of the pandemic to whatever our new normal is going to be. And this is, it's a very slow transition. That's what it feels like. Um, but it's going to be another round of disorientation. Now we've gotten sort of used to pandemic life and what is the new normal going to look like? So I've written about hurricanes in the Jesus Center daily, as a matter of fact, um, uh, the, the role and impact of hurricanes uh, fascinated me and I did some digging into it. So I'd like to read you my June 21st entry from the Jesus Center Daily, um, where I talk a little bit about the, the impact and purpose of hurricanes. Here we go. Most of us have held on to the wrong definition of adventure since childhood. We have a giddy interpretation of it, a Disneyland dream, but real adventures feel dangerous when we're inside them. The difference between a tropical storm and a hurricane is wind speed. And the difference between everyday life and an adventure is danger. So when we decide to follow Jesus, we enter into danger because he is at home in the hurricane. To live out his mission in our lives, we'll risk our vulnerability and our status and our safety and our complacence and our inadequacies. We will speak when others are silent, run toward when others run away, and open ourselves when others close down. Fear will tell us we are likely to be misunderstood and opposed and maybe even betrayed. But in the eye of the hurricane, we discover the calm of his great affection for us. So we live and breathe and move inside that eye, like tabernacle tents moving through the wilderness. With Jesus at our center, the wind speed of our lives intensifies, making us more alert and alive than we've ever been before. So that's a little passage from the June 21st devotional entry in the Jesus Center Daily. And um, that last line, with Jesus at our center, the wind speed of our lives intensifies. The hurricane sets in, is another way of saying that. And that makes us more alert and alive than we've ever been before. And it can be exhausting too, to live in an adventure, um, to live in the midst of danger, which is what an adventure requires. Um, is both exhilarating and exhausting. So I thought it'd be interesting for us to explore the way that Jesus brings hurricane into the lives of the people he loves. Hurricane actually may be the best way to describe what it felt like and what it feels like today to meet Jesus and to follow Jesus and to love Jesus. It means to enter into the hurricane who is Jesus. Now, I, uh, I love what Peter Kreeft says about meeting Jesus is that um, he, he's, he's the most upending person that's ever existed, that the one common denominator for everyone who's ever met Jesus is that their lives were changed and upended in some way, either for good or ill. It's such a great description of him. That's He's a moving hurricane. So what I'm going to do is choose a couple of uh, spots in the Gospel of Luke and look for the hurricane Jesus there. We're just going to explore what the hurricane feels like to those who experience it and what the impact 
is in their life, and then how new life springs from that experience. That's what we're going to take a shot at here. So I thought it would be interesting for us to go back to Luke 15. If you remember from our uh, last episode, which was on miracles, we focused on the parable of the lost sheep. And uh, that is from Luke 15. But I thought it would be interesting for us to expand out from that one parable because Luke 15 has three parables that are sort of lost and found parables. And there's a preamble that uh, we didn't really focus on in the last episode, the preamble, the verses one and two of Luke 15 that are interesting and important for us to understand the hurricane Jesus. So I thought it would be interesting to first go back to Luke 15 and take a look at these three very well-known parables, but through the lens of Jesus as the hurricane. So let me just read the preamble first to Luke 15. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Now let's stop right there because the next line is, so Jesus told them this story. <laughs> and he actually told them three stories. Um, and when Jesus does something three times and uses up basically an entire chapter of one of the gospels to make his point, he is making a point about the kingdom of God. He, he wants to approach it from three different directions, three different stories to br uh, bring home his point about this truth, this value, this characteristic in the heart of God and the kingdom of God. Um, so he wants to make sure people get it. But the context is crucial in order to understand why is he telling these stories and what is he trying to contrast with? So let me just read this for you once, once more, verses one and two, and let's slow down and explore this. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such people, even eating with them. So first, what we notice is that these tax collectors and notorious sinners, people that don't uh, travel in the same circles as the religious leaders on purpose, that, that there's, no, there's no chance that it's tax collectors and other notorious sinners were often coming to listen to the Pharisees, right? We talked about this in our last episode. These are people that you don't see hanging around Jewish rabbis. In fact, they would avoid them if possible because those Jewish rabbis were always railing away about what rotten people they were. Why would you want to hang around with those people? And here, the something unusual, almost impossible happens. They all love to gather around and listen to this particular rabbi teach but only this particular rabbi. And uh, they love to do this in public squares. They, they felt no shame about gathering around Jesus in the public square to listen to him, knowing that on the sidelines were the Pharisees and teachers of religious law, grumbling and complaining about this rotten, you know, rabble of, of, of people who in their minds were beneath notice. They were the trash of the culture. And uh, these people nevertheless came over and over again to see and listen to Jesus. They couldn't keep themselves away. 
And of course, this made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain <laughs> that, you know, you're, you're, you're messing this whole deal up, Jesus. Do you even understand what you're supposed to be doing? These are sinful people. You're not supposed to be associated with them. You're supposed to separate yourself from them. You're supposed to call those people out. And by, by any standard, you should not be eating with them. That's an invitation into relationship. There's no way you should take that step with them. Do you even know what and who these people are? They're disgusting. They, they never come close to the standards we've set up for goodness. They're not even interested in those standards. You are messing, up, messing this whole thing up. So this is the context in which Jesus tells his three lost and found stories. The first one is the parable of the lost sheep, when a man who has a hundred sheep in the wilderness and discovers that one of them is lost. And so he ventures out into the wilderness, not knowing where that sheep is, just knowing that sheep is lost, adventures out into the wilderness to find that lost sheep. And he searches and searches for that sheep until he finds it. And when he finds it, he joyfully carries it home on his shoulders. And when he gets home, he calls together all of his friends and neighbors and says, we got to have to have a party. I found my sheep. Then it, the, that story closes in a similar way to the other two. In the same way, Jesus says, there's more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. What is Jesus roiling here? What is the hurricane Jesus doing? He is roiling and upending the value system and the religious system of these hypocritical leaders. In their system, you have to try harder to be a better person. Only then are you acceptable to God. Only, only when you have crossed off all of your checkboxes for goodness can you say that you're a person of God or, or even um, deign to describe yourself as someone who loves God. If you can't prove to others what a good person you are by displaying your checkbox, then you have no business describing yourself as a person of God or a person who loves God or a person who follows God or a person who obeys God. It's all about trying harder to get better. And if, and if you fall below the line, then you're not even worth any attention. In fact, my main purpose in connecting, in, in uh, approaching you would be to distance myself, <laughs> to make sure you knew that you, you should have nothing to do with me. Um, that was the system that Jesus tells this story in. And in his story the lost sheep who got lost because of their own behavior, right? That, that sheep didn't, a helicopter didn't pick up that sheep and just drop him somewhere else in the wilderness. That sheep somehow did something to get himself lost. And then he did something to get himself stuck in the brambles. Uh, and in the Pharisee system, uh, of course, just leave that sheep, right? Leave him stuck in the brambles. Yeah. I mean, that was his choice. He got himself there. You know, I didn't do that. Look at me. I managed to stay out of the brambles. That person didn't. So their, their, their attitude toward the lost, the, per, the sheep stuck in the brambles is, well, that's their problem, not my problem. 
But in Jesus' story, he makes it the problem of the shepherd. He makes it the problem of a man who owns 100 sheep. That man won't rest, won't stop until he has found his lost sheep somewhere out there in the wilderness. He will keep looking until he finds that, that sheep caught up in the brambles. And his attitude toward the sheep once he finds that sheep is not, well, look what you've done. No, it's to rescue that sheep and carry that sheep home on his shoulders. What an intimate act. Instead of punishing the sheep or, or uh, uh, saying something snarky to the sheep that underlines, oh, well, you know, the, the, the reason you're in that bramble is because of what you've done. The man in the story does nothing of that. Instead, he puts the sheep on his shoulders, carries the sheep all the way home in an honored position. And when he gets home, he throws a huge party to let everyone know that that sheep that was lost has now been found. He's not trying to hide the sheep or because he's embarrassed about the sheep. No, he's celebrating the restoration of relationship that that sheep who is more valuable than anything else to the man has now been found and therefore worthy of celebrating. Now, the other two lost and found parables that are in Luke 15, they have a similar theme just coming from a different direction. The parable of the lost coin is a woman who has 10 silver coins and that's all she has in the world. And she loses one of them. It'd be like losing a 10th of your income or a 10th of your net net worth all of a sudden. And in the parable, Jesus says, won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? Yes, because the thing that's been lost is incredibly valuable. And the rabble, the tax collectors and notorious sinners, they are the one silver coin in this parable. They are incredibly valuable. And he won't stop looking for them. He'll shine his light for them so that he can find them and then invite them back into restored relationship. Um, this the parable of the lost coin is a picture of a woman who understands the value of what she's lost and won't stop until she recovers it. Jesus says in the same way, there's joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. And it's the same joy that someone feels when a 10th of your net worth is found. When you left a suitcase full of cash on your car and forgot about it, and it flew off on the highway, lost, and you, you had no idea where it was. And all of a sudden, someone contacts you through next door and says, I found your card inside this suitcase full of cash. Can I return it to you? Well, you throw a party. <laughs> you might even invite the person who found the suitcase into your party because what was lost that was incredibly valuable has now been found. And then, of course, the last parable in Luke 15 is the parable of the lost son. And we know this well, the parable of the prodigal son, where the younger reprobate son who cares so little for his father that he says, I wish you were dead. Because if you were dead, I could have my inheritance. So why don't you just give me my inheritance now because you're dead to me. He, the younger son makes himself dead to his father by doing this. And the father does something inexplicable in that culture and shocking and offensive, really. In that culture, if a son had done that, there's no way the father would give in to the demands of his son because that would mean that for this father, he would have to sell off 
a bunch of what he owns. And it would be public knowledge that he was doing this, that he was selling off a third of what he owned or half of what he owned and handing it over to his reprobate son. But that's exactly what the father in this story does. The son chooses to be dead to the father and leaves. And as far as the father is concerned, because the, the son is choosing his death from him, um, he will never see him again. The, the, the boy has chosen his path. And of course, in the story, the boy um, you, uh, just wastes all of his money on sinful living. And he just does the most degraded things and wastes all of the money and uh, realizes in his utter poverty where he's eating the food of pigs that um, at least if he was a servant in his father's home, he'd be treated well and he'd eat good food. And so he recognizes in his shame that he can never, never call himself the son of his father again. He's already done too much damage in his own mind. Um, he's destroyed that relationship, but at least he could ask for favor and become one of his hired servants so that he could eat and live better than he does. So the, the son considers himself still dead. I'm no longer a son. Now I, the best I could hope for is to be a servant. He's still dead. But when he returns home to his father, because there's a glimmer still remaining in him that if he turned and came home to his father, at least he could survive. His father would not turn him out. His father would not kill him on sight. That somehow his father would have enough compassion to invite him back into his sphere. So he returns home to his father and it says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming and filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son and embraced him and kissed him. And of course, the son first confesses his sin and says he's no longer worthy of being called his son. And, but what the father's response is, bring him the best clothes, get a ring from his finger, sandals for his feet, we're going to kill the calf, we're going we're gonna to have a feast, a party. Jesus likes to emphasize the joy he feels over finding what is lost by partying. He wants others to see the lost thing that's been found. And in this story, it so mirrors the context that Jesus is in right now, because these Pharisees and teachers of religious law are so offended that the notorious sinners are hanging out with Jesus, even eating with him, even partying with him. They're so offended. But in this story, um, the man holds a public feast for his son. He's telling everyone that the son that was dead is now returned to life. He was dead, not because I made him dead, but because he made himself dead. He was lost, but he's returned at my invitation, at the, at, at the belief that and the trust in my heart, he is now found. And so the party began, it says in verse 24. And yet... Um, who in this story represents the religious leaders? It's it's must be the older son, who's always done the right thing, has always kept his nose clean and done everything he was supposed to. And how on earth could this reprobate brother who did this to my dad be celebrated now? It's just disgusting and offensive. And the older son boldly tells his father this, that I'm angry. I'm not even going to go into the party. I've slaved for you and never once refused to give you uh, to, to, to do a single thing you've told me to do. And all that time, you never threw a party for me. 
And now this guy comes back and he's done all this damage and you're, and you're celebrating. And the father says to him, look, dear son, you've always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day. Your brother was dead and now he's come back to life. He's lost, but now he's found. What he's saying here is, um, you always have access to the party, son. I love and celebrate you every day. You're always inside my sphere of intimacy and plenty and generosity. But this son, this son made himself dead. And we celebrate dead things that come back to life. So what the father does is he restores family. He restores his family when all hope had been lost. And what Jesus is trying to say in a hurricane way to the, to the Pharisees and religious, uh, religious leaders is your system is deadly and I'm bringing a hurricane in to roil it, to churn up the dead stuff at the bottom of the ocean, to surface it into the light, to get it out of the darkness into the light, to show it for what it is. And as it comes to the surface, that brings life to the atmosphere, to the environment. Um, the hurricane Jesus comes in and upends what had been long dormant in the religious systems of the day and attracts for the first time those who know they're lost and know they need to be found. And those that are lost and know they need to be found somehow find their way to Jesus all the time. Their lostness is drawn to his foundness. Their lostness is drawn to the heart of the one who goes after the one sheep and leaves the 99 others in the wilderness, who treats their lostness as a, an incalculable treasure and a value that needs to be searched for until it's found, who treats their lostness as a reprobate son who recognizes his emptiness and finds the courage somehow to return. And when he returns, he is celebrated. Um, these, these three stories, and actually maybe we'll just, I enjoyed talking about those three stories so much. We won't, we won't uh, go to another place in Luke and find more of the hurricane, but you can find it anywhere pretty much you, you, wanna, you want to go in one of the Gospels. Just poke your hand down, uh, poke your finger down somewhere in, in one of the Gospels, Luke, uh, Mark, John, Matthew, any of them, and um, read a little bit, and you'll see the hurricane Jesus upending someone, uh, because he never doesn't upend the person in front of him. And here we have three stories that roll in like a hurricane into the broken culture of the day, and they devastate it. They dismantle it. Um, they they uh, create fear and disorientation and um, uh, a sense that you don't have your feet underneath you. That's what the effect of the hurricane does to the people he's intending this to upend, <laughs> Pharisees and teachers of religious law. So to them, their experience of this is, oh my gosh, a devastating hurricane. But the effect of this in the culture of the broken world is to plant the seeds of the kingdom of God in that broken culture, to remind people 
of the distant memory they have of what love and mercy and grace really is, what the heart of God is really like. It is not like the heart that the Pharisees describe, the checkbox of good deeds that you have to uh, discipline yourself to keep up with, or you're out of fellowship with the community and out of fellowship with God. It's not like that at all. Instead, all of the grace and mercy and perseverance and courage is on the shoulders of Jesus, who pursues until the lost thing is found. That is the nature of the kingdom of God. A, a, a God king who creates a culture where lost things are always being found and are never, ever given up on. What will it mean for you to enter into the hurricane today? Well, for sure, it's going to mean risk and danger because it's an adventure to follow Jesus. So what is the thing you've been afraid to risk? And what would it look like to walk into that hurricane today instead of run from it? Every person who ever did that with Jesus was upended. Some, like the religious leaders, had a cancer in their heart exposed. And some found a life springing up in them they'd only ever dreamed of. Gang, thanks for listening today. Uh, you can go to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com and look for season six, episode seven for links to anything we've talked about today. Just head on over there. And again, if you want to check out a, a 10-day sampler of the Jesus Center Daily, you can head over to jesuscenterdaily.com. Check that out there and order your copy. And just as a reminder, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from ricklawrence.com. You can subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode on Google Play or iTunes, and we'll see you again next week.